Picture this. It's 2012. You are the newly appointed CEO of an electronics brick and mortar retailer, Best Buy, and Amazon continues its meteoric rise, and your company's profits are down 91%, your share price plummets, and your prospects for the future look grim. This is the story of how Hubert Jolie managed an eight-year transformation, which saw Best Buy's shares go up from $11 to $110. And spoiler alert, he doesn't start by firing everybody. I'm Marilyn. I'm the CEO and founder of Cosmic Centaurs, and you're listening to the first episode of the third season of our weekly live video series called Center Stage. I like to call this season the Shahrazad of the business world, although I told my team I'd never say this publicly. Human beings are wired to love stories, and in my years as a manager and a leader, I have found that some of the best lessons I've learned were from the stories of how other leaders brilliantly succeed or tragically fail. In this third season, we're going to dive deep into tales of triumph and tragedy, sharing lessons learned from companies and leaders who have faced incredible challenges. Today, we embark on a journey through the remarkable turnaround story of Best Buy and its visionary leader, Hubert Jolie. In our episode, we'll uncover how Hubert masterminded an extraordinary eight-year transformation, leading Best Buy to soar from the ashes. It is a tale of resilience, innovation, and a steadfast commitment to employees and customers. In 2012, Best Buy is struggling. It is faced with the unstoppable rise of the online giant Amazon. Its profits are down the drain. In January of that year, Forbes announces through one of their articles that Best Buy was for sure going to go out of business. In March, the company reported a loss of $1.7 billion. Their quarterly profits are plummeting by 91% and their stock prices are at a nine-year low. But Hubert is about to change the game. Let's learn about him a little bit. Julie's journey began as a McKinsey consultant, and as a consultant and a partner, his expertise led him to work in many different organizations and industries, but eventually he was hired by one of his clients to be the president of EDS France, a company where profits had been declining, and in his time there, and this was his first turnaround, he managed to triple its size. Then he moved on to his second role, that added to his track record of transforming businesses. And he went on to work for Vivendi, which was a French media conglomerate. And as the CEO, he be, uh, is the CEO of the gaming division. He led the turnaround of the company's gaming business. That included the acquisition and revitalization of, if you guys remember, if you're my age, you might remember Blizzard Entertainment. They were the guys behind some of the most incredible PC games. Um, and under his watch, they released World of Warcraft, and he even has credits in Diablo 2. After that, he served as the CEO of Carlson, 
a global travel and hospitality company uh, with brands like Radisson Hotels and TGI Fridays. And under his leadership, it grew its annual slaves from 8.9 billion in 2003 to 25 billion in 2007. And at the top of this mountain, at the top of his success, he realized that for a bunch of his life, he had been driven by power, fame, glory, money. He had something of a midlife crisis. He took some time to think through how he wanted to lead and fell upon this concept of eulogy values versus resume values. Um, It's in a book by David Brooks. And essentially, it talks about what are some of the attributes that as a leader, you know, look good on your resume versus the ones that you want people to talk about in your eulogy? I remember for myself in between two jobs, my coach actually made me write a spe- actually a series of speeches, five different speeches that people would be giving at my 80th birthday. Someone from my family, a child, a friend, a community member, and a colleague. And when you think of your life in that perspective, you start to really realize what values you hope to live out and what you hope to leave behind you. And maybe that leads you to make new uh, changes and lead your life in a new way. And it's about that time that he becomes the CEO of Best Buy. You know, Jolie really believed in a philosophy that looked at the interconnectedness of people, customers, and finance in the sense that for a lot of leaders, if you ask them, you know, what is the big goal of your organization? What are you trying to achieve? They'll always start with a financial goal, profit, revenue. They feel as if the ultimate goal of an organization is to deliver financial value. But in the eyes of Uber, and I very much align with this perspective of the world, actually, you start by recognizing that a company is made of humans and that Rather than thinking of humans as the source of the problem, you see them as the engine for the solution to the problem. And so you start with the people imperative of really listening and understanding and catering to your employees, because in turn, they will cater to your customers and that eventually will generate revenue. And so when Hubert joins Best Buy in 2012, he sticks to his people-centric turnaround playbook. And his playbook starts by saying that rather than start by cutting, which is probably what everyone was saying, you know, fire employees, close stores, cut your costs down. His belief is that you always start a turnaround by increasing revenue, not by trying to cut costs. And in order to do that, the first lesson of Hubert's story is he started by listening to his employees. His first week was actually spent in a store even though he only had eight weeks to announce his goal and his plan to Wall Street of how he was going to turn around the company, his first week, he was wearing a blue shirt, khaki pants, like everybody on the team. He had a badge that, you know, named him CEO in training. And he just sat there listening to the frontliners, to the customers. He says that they had all of the answers. He found that actually the time of Best Buy wasn't gone. People needed Best Buy. Customers needed a place to touch and feel and see the products and ask questions. He also saw that their vendors needed them. In the face of Amazon, where that relationship to the product had become completely digitized, the vendors, the Samsungs, even the Apples, 
um, uh, the Microsofts, the Googles of this world, they still needed a physical space where people could interact with their products. In that sense, he saw that the market wasn't the problem. There was still enough demand for what they could do. Actually, all of the problems were self-inflicted, in his own words. It was execution that was terrible. The prices were too high. The online shopping experience was broken. He remembers one of the associates telling him, just try the search engine, it's broken. He said, type in the word Cinderella. And he did. And when he typed it, he got results that included cameras, you know, devices, but not any DVDs or CDs. And by taking the time to observe his employees and their interactions with customers, he realized that actually what they needed to do was to fix the operational process first. It wasn't about necessarily coming up with a big new strategy. It was first about really understanding that there were things that were broken operationally. Their prices weren't competitive. Their website wasn't working. They were losing customers to showrooming because they would walk into the store and get great advice from their people, but then they would buy a cheaper product on Amazon. So it wasn't about starting with a fresh new strategy. It was about renewing the way that they did things. And so within eight weeks, he launched this program called Renew Blue. Blue, as I mentioned earlier, is the color of the shirts that the employees of Best Buy wear. And I have to say that there is some form of genius in branding a new strategy. Everybody knew what to rally behind. And that new strategy was deceivingly simple. Match the prices of online retailers so they don't lose their clients. Actually, I love his expression where he was saying, our clients are ours to lose. So match the price, fix the online experience, but also realize that the stores have value in that people can come and get advice and make good decisions. And so rather than cutting down costs and firing staff, he actually invested in upskilling the in-store staff so that they could become better advisors. And his plan, of course, also included working with vendors. Samsung was the first brand to agree to establish a store inside the Best Buy stores. And then he went on to do the same with Microsoft, Sony, Google, Amazon, and Apple, of course. And by doing that, he was giving these vendors a space to interact with their customers where they wouldn't have to bear the cost of the retail stores, but he was also funding his own. So as Renew Blue was taking shape, he also knew that it's very, very important, and that's lesson number two, to focus on the company's purpose, right? If you walk into a company and say, all right, everybody, let's rally behind doubling our share price. Let's rally behind tripling our revenue. No one would really care about the company. That's not exactly motivating. And so together with his leadership and the teams at Best Buy, they actually uncovered that what they were really about wasn't just selling electronics, that they were a company that leveraged technology to address key human needs and enrich people's lives. And the beauty of that is that, one, of course, it's inspiring. In the middle of a turnaround, you need to unlock the energy of the organization and providing them with a clear plan, but also an aspirational purpose is an incredible way of doing that. But also that by saying that we are something more than an electronics retailer, that we use technology to enable and enrich people's lives, that allows you to go beyond what you think your job is. It allows you to unlock 
new addressable markets. And so if you're able to rally people around that mission and connect your employees to this idea of enriching human, you know, the lives of the humans that they touch, that allows you to connect with your customers and to treat them as family or friends. But it also allows you to unlock what Hubert calls his, you know, third most important thing, which is the human magic inside organization. You see, Hubert really believes that your role as a leader is to create an environment where people can thrive, one individual at a time if you have to. The idea is that you can create environments where people can become the best, biggest, most beautiful version of themselves. And if you're able to do that, then your people will turn around your organization. He firmly believed that it wasn't ideal that he would always be the smartest person in the room, but that really the point was to ensure that everybody was fulfilled and had something meaningful that they were contributing to and felt seen and taken care of. He mentions a visit to a store near Boston, which was one of his highest performing stores, where he discovered that the manager asked every single person on his team, what is your dream? And then he would work to see how he could help them achieve it through the work that they were doing at a company. That is one example of human magic being unlocked. Another example he recounts is one of a mother and a child coming into the store where the child had received a dinosaur as a gift for the holidays, but the dinosaur was sick. Actually, what has happened was his head was dismantled from the body. And the child didn't want any other dinosaur. He didn't want a new dinosaur. He wanted this one to be fixed. And so the employees at that store ended up taking the dinosaur, putting him behind the counter, and out loud, you know, going through the equivalent of a surgical procedure where they were explaining step by step to the child the steps that they were taking to make his dinosaur whole again. Now, of course, in the background, they had given him a new one. But the idea is that unlocking human magic is about having your employees do things that don't have an SOP. They don't have a clear process for how you do them. I'm sure there wasn't a process for how to deal with a sick dinosaur. And the idea there is that these employees felt so connected to their purpose of improving human lives that they just, they found it in their heart. They figured out what needed to be done and they created magic for the customer. Now, that's not to say that Uber didn't cut costs at all. Actually, he did, but he cut costs effectively with empathy and very quietly. He started always, and that's another you know, page in his playbook, thinking about what are the costs that he could cut that don't start by cutting salary-related expenses. Actually, by 2014, he had cost, cut around $2 billion in costs, and 70% of those $2 billions were not related to salaries or employees. He went on the hunt for things that could be done better operationally in order to save money. An example he cites in more than one interview is actually in today's world, big TVs that are very thin and very large are very fragile. And because they sold a lot of them, actually in their warehouses, these things often broke. They fell off the crane and they broke very easily. And so what then Jolie did and his team is that 
they went into the value chain approach and they worked with vendors to redesign the packaging of the TV and how they were stored and moved um, in order to ensure that there was less breakage. And that was one way that he could think through reducing those costs. And that's the story of how Hubert really manages to go from a situation where a brick and mortar electronic retailer in the middle of the rise of Amazon and, and e-commerce still manages to find a place for this organization, not by coming in and doing top-down approach and setting up the strategy and telling everybody what to do, but by coming in and listening to his people, learning from their interactions with customers, coming up with a deceivingly simple plan bringing the energy and the engine and the attention to his people to ensure that everybody was on board, not cutting costs that have to do with people first, and then ensuring that everybody just contributed in their own ways and that the human magic factor really came to life. In an interview with McKinsey, he says, in a turnaround and in business life more generally, you start with people. I learned many years ago that there are three imperatives in a company. The people imperative, you need the right people, properly engaged and equipped. The business imperative, you need happy customers. And the financial imperative, which is the performance. You never start with finance. You start with people. And that's what I did. You know, at Cosmic Centers, you'll often hear us talk about our bowtie framework. If you've ever seen it, it's on our website. We'll add a link to it. But essentially, we divide the word of leaders between what we call the blue and the pink side of an organization. The blue side represents all things related to your customer. That's your marketing, market strategy, your value proposition, your brand, your products, your channels, your distribution, your positioning. And on the other side, on the pink side, that's everything related to your people's experience your organizational strategy, your values, the processes, the culture, the engine that enables your employees to create value. And I think what's really beautiful about Hubert's approach is that he truly understood that you cannot have a successful organization that overcomes challenges such as the ones that he was facing without focusing on both the pink side and the blue side. If employees didn't have an organization where they could thrive, They could not have adapted to these new circumstances and to this entire new way of approaching their business and creating value. And that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the story. Thank you for tuning in and engaging. Uh, we'll, of course, be reposting the videos on our social pages, YouTube and website. I'm Marilyn Zackauer. You're listening to Center Stage Season 3, where I tell stories of incredible challenges and the leaders who face them. If you need help turning around your organization, aligning your employees, listening to them, thinking about how to bring inspiration back into your organization, send me a message. I'd love to chat. See you next week, where I'll be talking about IKEA and how sometimes strategy is something you discover.